Welcome to Calvary Chapel Faith Fellowship with Pastor Jim Swiger. Morning, as we come to Colossians chapter three, uh, we come to a transition point in the book of Colossians and in our study. The first two chapters, as you recall, uh, Paul, as he did so often in his epistles uh, to the churches, laid out the doctrinal truths, particularly the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in these remaining two chapters of Colossians, we'll be more focused on the application or the practical. Uh, living out of, of that doctrine. Um, doctrine. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Doctrine, which can be defined as the body of principles in a branch of knowledge or system of belief. How important is doctrine? Well, for the church, it's very important because we have to have the right doctrine. And Paul, uh, and we see throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, the importance of doctrine, reminded right after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit wants us to know from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. That's a foundational verse for the church of Jesus Christ. And right along with that, is doctrine. Second Timothy, in fact, let's turn there. Or we might have it on the screen. Second Timothy chapter two. How important is doctrine? Well, Paul mentioned again in his epistles. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So again, the importance of doctrine, lining up with what Paul said to Timothy, again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the importance of doctrine the basis of belief for any system or branch of knowledge. And this is, this is so vital, as the Lord warns us in his scriptures, that in the last days that there will be a falling away. And we certainly see that in the days that we're living in, that the church, professing church, slowly, slowly, slowly moving away from sound doctrine. Case in point, I found this article, perfect timing, uh, this week. Um, and the title had something of, you know, that the church is confused, or the professing believers of today are confused. And you might ask, well, why, why are we taking our time through the book of Colossians? Well, here's my answer. We need to have right doctrine, particularly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said himself, you will... Worship him in spirit and in truth. And if we don't have the right Jesus or the right facts and essentials regarding Jesus, then we could be worshiping God falsely. 
we certainly will be living our lives in a manner that is not pleasing and, and not worshiping God. But let me just read a couple of these things, and you're probably familiar with these things, what's going on in the body of Christ, but listen to this. Again, under the umbrella of false doctrine, or not right doctrine, nearly half of evangelicals agree that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Hopefully the radar is going off in your head, like, come on, Jim. You have been taught well in the scriptures. That's in stark contrast, this half of evangelicals agree that God learns and adapts. God doesn't learn and adapt. He, he doesn't change. He doesn't need to change. He's God. In stark contrast to the biblical doctrine of unchanging nature or immutability. 65% of evangelicals agree that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Again, from Genesis to Revelation, we see the need for a Savior that God himself provides the remedy for us, right? Through his son Jesus, through a sacrifice on the cross that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament through the, the sacrifice and offerings of animals, like we've looked at in Colossians. So born innocent in the eyes of God, denying the doctrine of original sin. What about this one? Some 50%, or excuse me, some 56% of evangelicals agreed with the idea that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, which, as we know from the scriptures that tell us, is in stark contrast to one another. Jesus said, you know, that without him, no one knows the Father. The most, stunning, most, excuse me, the most stunning result that had to do with the topic of Jesus Christ's divinity when asked whether they agreed that Jesus was a great teacher but not God, listen to this. 43% of American evangelicals agreed yes. That number is up 13% just from two years ago. So we're getting close to 50% of professing evangelicals that don't even believe that Jesus is God. Even more so, over half of the professing evangelical church believes that God accepts the worship of all religions. We have a problem with that. Why? Because Jesus stands opposite of every other belief system. God has sent his son Jesus. And Paul has been showing us that, or, or the word of God as we've looked at these first two chapters, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. That's what Paul's message was to the church of Colossae. And it's the message that we stand on today. Who Jesus Christ is. He can't be just a great prophet or a good moral teacher. He's the son of God. Islam believes in Jesus. Some sects of Islam even believes that he, he part of a virgin birth. But he's not the son of God. That's a problem. That goes directly against the scriptures. And again, if we don't have right doctrine, we can't worship God. We can't live our lives truly for the Lord. And we see where this is going, right? The moral decay today, 
moral decline in the world today, even in the church of Jesus Christ. All comes back to who do we say Jesus is? And so as we come to Colossians 3, um, you know, Paul's been, been saying and, and telling Colossians, you know, all about Jesus, who he is, what he's done. Remember Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He, meaning Jesus, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son, of the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins. Also, Paul said, Colossians 2.13, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And so now we come to the most awesome transition of the first four verses in the book of Colossians that lead and show us, and we'll be chewing on this for the next couple of weeks. Since Jesus is who he is, and what he's done for you and I, how then should you and I live? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray for your Holy Spirit now to bring forth your truth. Remind us of who we are in Jesus. Remind us of the victory that we have, despite all the stuff going on in the world, despite all the different beliefs, despite all the negativity and the, and the, uh, the mindset of some in the church today, as we just read, the different percentages, high percentages of not believing that Jesus is the Son of God and salvation only comes through him. Lord, if the church doesn't know what they believe and live out what they believe, is there hope? So, Father, I pray for your spirit this morning that as we chew on these scriptures, Lord, that we would understand of where we are in Christ that we would truly see that we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and we stand in victory. And may we have your perspective in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let's read these first four verses together, beginning in verse 1 of Colossians chapter 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So again, we have a perfect transition point, a bridge, if you will, from everything that Paul said before in the first two chapters until now. And it says in verse 1, if then, since then, is how we should read this. Since we are in Christ. It's speaking of reality, not a wishful thought, not a possibility, but an absolute. Not referring to a future time, but in the here and now. The resurrected life that we've been looking at. Speaking from the very first moment of conversion, it's since, since you have had that moment with God, since you have come to faith in Christ Jesus. Seek those things which are above. You know, the physical resurrection of Jesus ensures us of your and my resurrection in Christ Jesus. 
Again, this is a, a reality. It's not a wishful thought. It's something that when it happened, the very moment that we turned our lives over to God, recognizing who his son is and whom he offered him, the very moment, this is who Paul's talking of. So if you made that commitment to Christ, he's talking of you. It's a reality. The power of his resurrection is the power in which we live with today. He says, seek those things which are above. Again, words are important, and seek carries the idea of striving for earnestly to pursue. It's a continuous seeking. Since you have been raised with Christ, then seek those things that are above. Makes sense, right? Since we have been resurrected, we are the resurrected lifers. That's our name. Resurrected lifers. Reminded back in the Navy days, they called you lifers. You know, lifer digging dogs, you know, on that submarine. But we're resurrected lifers. That's who we are in Christ. The perspective, the outlook, the attitude that you and I ought to have is a heavenly perspective. I'm reminded in uh, what Paul said to the church at Ephesus and Ephesians chapter 4, verses, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. I love this scripture. Listen. But God. Of course, there's 500 sermons right there. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's reality. This is how God, this is where God sees you and I now. We are seated with his son Jesus. It's the reality that you and I don't clearly see, but it's the reality based on our position in Christ. We are seated with Christ at the right hand of God. C.S. Lewis wrote, and I, I, I'll never forget this, because you and I, we have limited minds, right? We don't have unlimited minds. We are limited. But God does not. He sees it all. And for God to see our lives, it's like him watching a parade. When you go to a parade, and I haven't been to a parade in years, but when you go to a parade, you get a small portion to see that parade. But God sees the parade from the beginning to the end. So he sees you and I in Christ. He sees us, the reality of who we are in Christ, right there with him. That's reality. This is the reality that Paul is exhorting, uh, or he exhorted the uh, believers at Colossae, and this is the exhortation that we receive from God. Live with this reality. Set, our, our mind, set things, uh, our mind on things that are above. Seek, and then uh, set your things on Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Again, words are important. The word set speaks of continuous efforts, not stopping. It's constant and deliberate act of our wills. God isn't like a genie. The Holy Spirit's not like a genie that he'll just zap us, and then your whole life is nothing but God. I wish that were the case, right? Then I wouldn't have to deal with my flesh. Just zap me, Lord, and we'll call it good. 
But God doesn't do that because he tells us to walk by faith, not by sight. And we'll have this exhortation here to set our mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Romans chapter 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word transform there. In the Greek, I believe it's metamorphosis. The, the transformation that takes place. And isn't that a wonderful thing in the life of a believer? The transformation that takes place that no explanation can be done or given except God has done a word. Amen? Hopefully that describes you. That your life has been transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so essentially, we're being exhorted to have the mind of Christ. To have our minds connected with God. The reality is that you and I are seated at the right hand of God. That's reality. We are in Christ. And those that live with this resurrected life in Christ do so by seeking heaven. You know, people want to say, well, you don't want to be too heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I haven't found any of those folks yet. I'm certainly not one. But we do need to have a heavenly mindset. We need to be connected with God. Understand the reality that we are with him. Again, Paul's bringing it all. It's all about Jesus and the Psalms. Did they not just line up once again with these just couple verses that we're looking at? That's the work of God. Now, we have to admit it's challenging, isn't it? To keep our mindset on the things that are above. If we're honest, we... Uh, we have to admit there's times, and, and maybe a lot of times, especially in the days we're living in, where distractions come in. And, and you know, we, rather than things of heaven, we get focused on things of, on the earth. And we get too mindsetted on our circumstances or the way things are playing out in our life or, or whatever. It's so easy for that to happen. And, and the Lord knows it. That's the amazing thing. The Lord knows. And that's why we're encouraged in the Word to have our minds connected with him. Always. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 21 through 21, Jesus said this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven which neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves also break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, that last verse there, for where your treasure is, there, there's your heart. It's really, what do you live for? What do you live for? First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we're reminded in those scriptures that we have to deal with the things of the world. How much of our mind is connected to what's going on in the world? Well, that we don't even see day to day. I can't, think of, I can't help but to think of what's going on in Russia. We should keep our, we need to, right? Because that does connect to the mind of Christ, don't get me wrong. But we can be so consumed. And the enemy is the one who wants to bring forth fear. You know, you hear on the media, they just want to, you know, the threat of nuclear wars hasn't been like this ever. And, you know, 
We're living in rough days, no doubt about it. And then we can be consumed with devastation in our own country, and rightfully so. Our heart should be compassionate to, to help out in any way we can and certainly pray for those that are in need and, 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 you know, in Florida and along the coast and uh, pray for those that will be attending and going down to offer relief help. Certainly those are notable things, but we can be so consumed with the things in this world. We also get consumed with things of the flesh, right? We battle the flesh. The Lord knows we battle the flesh. And we're going to see Paul knows as the Holy Spirit speaking through him. How do we battle the flesh? Since you have this reality that we are seated with Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father, if we are in the, if that's his reality, to live in that reality, how do we deal with the flesh? Because it's still a problem. Well, we're going to find out in the scriptures. And then what about the enemy? The devil. The one who hates our soul. He hates us because he hates Jesus Christ. We battle against him, but listen, it's not our battle against the enemy. Amen? He's the one's coming against God. He opposes Jesus, and therefore he hates us, he opposes us. But it's not our battle. As we read in Colossians 2, that battle has been, the war has been won at the cross. The enemy has no power over us. Yes, he can send and do things to try to get our focus off him, but he has no power over us. And then Paul says, verse 3, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For you died. And Paul speaking of when Jesus made us alive, when we were born again, we just didn't say and believe these certain facts about God, that he loves me, and that he sent his son for me, that he sent him to die for me. It says you died. See, it's not enough to just simply believe in the facts that God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son. That whoever shall believe in him shall have eternal life. It's not a, enough to believe that. There had to be some kind of an encounter with God, understanding that Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we had an encounter with God through him, and we received from him. The word believe in John 3.16 speaks of a commitment. It's about turning your life over to him. And there's a difference. And that's where, in my opinion, all those statistics that we read about the evangelical church today you can believe in facts. You can believe in a lot of different facts. But those who have died in Christ, having been made alive in him, it's different. We've experienced the grace and mercy and love of God. So then this resurrected life, connected to that commitment, we've died. Now you might be thinking, well, he's saying die, he, we, we've died, and, and he says, now uh, your life is hidden with Christ and God. Again, why is it important to look at this? Because this is Christianity 101. Christianity isn't about the emotionalism. It isn't about the entertainment. It isn't about anything other than Jesus. 
And I tell you, I am, I am so thrilled to be part of this church plant. Because there's a lot, I have a lot of flaws. You probably picked up on them by now. We're in this thing two months. And, but there's no expectation. There's no, I just want to present the word of God, teach the word of God, and that we grow in Christ and get ready for his coming. And to be a light to the world and simply Christianity 101, that I live that resurrected life, knowing that I, God loved me, he sent his son for me, I have the Holy Spirit in me, I still deal with the flesh, I deal with the world, the enemy drives me crazy because I let him. But the simplicity of Christianity 101, this is what Paul talked about a lot through the scriptures. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the new life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What about Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7? Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. See, again, there's a difference between encountering the living God through his son Jesus and simply believing in facts. I can believe that my sins are forgiven, but if I haven't experienced my sins being forgiven, then I have not entered into that resurrected life. And it's the resurrected life that God offers to you and I to live this life here on earth, to live with the reality that I am seated with Jesus at the right hand of God. But this is a fascinating statement and no doubt directed to uh, the Gnostics and those who were claiming to have, you know, hidden knowledge. And you had to come to them and have this hidden knowledge to be, to be right with God. I'm so thankful he just simply revealed himself through his word and through his spirit. Hidden with Christ, the crypto, which speaks of secrecy. And Paul certainly implying here that believers, we have such a unique relationship with God that non-believers cannot possibly fathom, nor can they see. They have no understanding of it, the relationship that we have with God. They only see the physical. They can see us being transformed. They can see the changes that are made in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit as we surrender and turn our lives over to him. But there is this spiritual essence that the world can't ever possibly know that we have with God through his son Jesus. It's hidden in a sense, but we're also told that there's going to be a revelation. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. And can't you just hear the skeptics? Well, we're all children of God. We're all, God's our creator. Well, that's true. We're all children of God in that sense, but... In the relationship between a believer, one who has experienced the resurrected life, it's hidden. 
Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Again, the world can't possibly understand us being hidden in Christ. Verse 4. Then when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is our life. He's our essence. He's the source. He's our sustainer. You know, we might think of others. Well, that person, their life is all about their job. Or their life is all about their work. And I say, what about his or her life is all about sports? <laughs> and all the men bow their heads. No, just <laughs> But our life as believers, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And we're told here, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. See, we're hidden now, but there's going to be a revelation for you and I. We're going to understand this even more when we are with Christ. We're told of a future that we will appear with him. And I am convinced that Paul was not starting, wanting to start any uh, debates about when this takes place. I think he's wanting us to understand, and the Lord wants us to understand. It doesn't matter your view of pre-tribulation view of the rapture, post-tribulation rapture, but you and I could be a, hidden with the Lord and understand us being hidden with him in a moment here. Just like that, right? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's the mindset here. But I love the fact that certainly Paul points out throughout the scriptures and the epistles how the church should be mindful, individuals should be mindful that there is going to be a day that we are with him. And that should make us excited. There should not be any fear. But let's look at a couple scriptures easy to go off on a tangent here, but we won't. We want to stay on the context. But think about Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And so the reality, we are with Christ in heaven. We are hidden with Christ. And we also know that our citizenship with him, but there's going to be a day that we are with him in glory. Again, Paul wants us to understand, the Lord wants us to understand and be heavenly minded. We want to be ready for the Lord's coming. Especially that means the rapture. That Jesus can come at any time for his church. You know, some people think, well, the, the, the pre-tribulation rapture has made, made the church lazy. Well, I, there's some truth into that. There is some truth to that. Paul talked about that in 2 Thessalonians. The doctrine of, or being mindful that Jesus could come at any time and that we would be in his presence, that, that, that shouldn't make us hunker down and, and huddle up and just wait for his coming. We should be busy. He said, occupy till I come. 
We should be busy living our lives in holiness before him. And also, if we believe the message that we say we believe, if we, if we proclaim the message that I as a believer have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, transforming me from the old kingdom into his kingdom, or the old man into the new man, I should have a desire or an urgency, because I believe Jesus is coming, to tell others. That's being busy for the Lord. If we live out our convictions. And then again, we looked at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, but let's finish that mindset out in that scripture. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved. Who's that? That's believers. Beloved. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Praise the Lord, right? That's for you and I. We're going to be in the presence of God. We'll be in his glory. And so having, again, this mindset, now what? Well, I'm glad you asked. Now what? How do we live with this? How are we supposed to live? What's it mean? Well, it's more than facts. Verse 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, covetousness which, which is idolatry. So with our minds set on things above, we are to put to death these certain sins. And the world tells us that you died with Christ, and, or excuse me, the word tells us we died with Christ. And now it can be confusing. If I've died in Christ, then how am I to put to death, or why should I put to death these sins? Well, again, the Lord's wanting our practical life to match up with our beliefs, our convictions. Since you have been raised with Christ, since we set our minds on things that are above and not on the earth, since I have this reality of my life is hidden with Christ, I am to put to death. And the put to death in the Greek here literally means to mortify, to make death. I get the picture of, you know, you get some of them old westerns or some kind of movie when you have somebody, when they have somebody in submission and showing a physical authority over them, they put their foot on their neck to do away with them. That's what the Lord wants us to do with sin. And interesting, there's no confusion here what sins that are reflected here. Sexual sins. It doesn't mean suppression or controlling. It's to slay, to put to death. And each of these sins, again, referring to sexual sins, fornication, which is any sexual activity outside the marriage. The sexual immorality was running rampant here in Colossae during that time. Uncleanness speaks of impurity, the misuse of sex. Really, we can put all forms of evil in these uh, definitions or defining these words. Passion, uncontrollable lust, evil desire connected to passion, speaking uh, more directly of the mental, allowing things to enter our mind and, and playing them out. Covetousness, not only wanting more, but what, wanting more of what others have. Certainly a problem in that first century church, but let's, let's relate this to today. We live in a perverted society. We live 
with such perversion and hostility towards God. And in all of it, now Paul lays this out in Romans 1, it's all a substitute for God. And think about that for a minute. With all the goofiness, and I, that's what I call it, goofiness of the wokeism and the defining or ad, uh, adding the different genders. I don't know how many we're up to now. Um, the gay and lesbian, transgenderism and all of it. It's all idolatry. It's essentially man playing God. It's essentially trying to fulfill something that only God can do. It's a substitute for God. And man can't live continuously in the place that we are. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 6. And again, this lifestyle, this world of perversion, it was going on in that century, the first century. Paul talks about it a lot through his epistles. But the word of God is same today as it was and as it will always be. The word of God always has relevancy. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. How much of the church world, the evangelical world, are accepting homosexuality? How much of the church world is saying, we just need to love one another? Now, God hates sin, but he doesn't hate the sinner. And I am convinced the only hope for this world is Jesus. And when you think about it, God can do whatever he wants to do. But he desires to use his church, to use his people, to carry out his thinking, right? Setting our minds on the things above and not on things of this earth. To see this world how he sees it. Yes, hate the sin, but not the sinner. And I'm so thankful that God in his word, he, remind, he reminded me as I looked at this, look at verse 11, because we could look at those sins, if they're, you know, this defines somebody, if they live in fornication and living these different lifestyles. We can't ever come across to people that there's no hope. And some of the church world has taken that mindset. We're to be about hope. And we do that by speaking truth and love. And calling sin, sin. And the only remedy for sin is Jesus. And Jesus is our hope. And then look at verse 11. It says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 
God wants to deliver man and woman, the two genders, from sin. But we live in this world of perversion. It's everywhere, isn't it? Everywhere you turn, a billboard, everywhere you flip the stations, it's there. Commercials of football games, it's there. It's there. It's just everywhere. But look, verse 6 says, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. The wrath of God is coming. We understand that. The judgment of God is coming. We understand that. But there's also mindset here that judgment has already come or is in process. When you look at our culture, we cannot possibly continue as the perversion continues, the life without God, as we continue to follow this progressive way certainly man will implode. And that's exactly what we're living with now. And that crosses the mindset of, you know, the critical race theory, that crosses the mindset of, you know, defending police. All that is a strategic play of the devil for years and years, nothing new. And it always comes to the foundation of God does not exist. That's where we are. So our culture, our, our nation, is trying to live without God. Man cannot live without God. Consequences will come. And so we're seeing the consequences of this mindset, the perversion, being played out. Well, Jim, what exactly are you talking about? What about our children? You feed enough junk in a person's mind, they begin to believe it, and they get older, they get to junior high, they get to senior high, and all that junk's there, they're living it out and living it out and living it out, and it's just a continued cycle to, to where we're going. It's just evil. Enter the body of Christ. We are the hope. But I tell you, if we don't live out our faith, and we don't proclaim the gospel, the true hope of man, that man should have in, in Jesus Christ. Then we're not doing our part. We're not being effective. And the people have no hope. But if we keep the mindset of Jesus, how does Jesus look upon this world? He feels the pain much more than you and I do. He longs to work much more than you and I do. We have to be about his business. But we're told here to put off. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Put off. The, the mindset here is uh, taking off clothes, taking off the dirty clothes. That's the old man. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 4. Putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Putting off the, the old dirty clothes and putting on the new ones that God has given to us. The old man is the old self before Jesus. Now the command here is to put off these sins. You might be thinking, well, 
this really doesn't apply to me. It might not, but then again, it might. Interesting, that, you know, it's interesting that Paul, these, this list here speaks of things coming out of your mouth. Anger, the seething rages, ill feelings against someone, the wrath, the outburst of anger, blowing your staff, we might call it, malice, doing harm with words, blasphemy speaks of slander and putting others down, filthy language, a foul mouth, such as using acceptable words that are in the culture. While we're on the evangelical church today, you ever notice some of these churches and the stuff that comes out of the pastor's mouth? It's acceptable. Lying, speaking falsely. Paul tells us we are to take these things, we are to remove them from our lives because this isn't having the mind of Christ. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Put off the old and put on the new. Dressing ourselves in accordance with the Lord, the clothes that he's given to us, being conformed to the image of Christ. You know, you might ask yourself, maybe we'll ask ourselves together, what is the will of God? How do you define that when you are asked that question? What is the will of God for my life? Well, in Romans chapter 8, Paul mentioned being conformed to the image of his son. Right? That's, that's high up there if you want to make a list. It might be, number one, what's God's desire for you and I in our life today? Well, that we are being conformed to the image of of his son, that we're becoming more Christ-like. Being more Christ-like. Paul mentions there, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, nor slave, nor free, but Christ is all in all. The point here, the new man is part God's family. There's no walls of division. The barbarians, they didn't speak the Greek language. There's no, there's no barriers. Again, Paul talked about that in Ephesians. No barriers to the body of Christ. And again, in context, wanting the believers at Colossae to understand the reality of who they were in Christ, where they were in Christ, Understanding that it's a work of God. And if it's a work of God, then he's given us everything, right? When you think about our lives as believers. And maybe this needs to be, in fact, let's just do that. This is a prayer for you and I this week. May the power of God be upon us even more and more. Where am I going with this? Well, let's turn to Ephesians 3. Because, again, we, we need to deal with the flesh. It would be nice if we could always be in that heavenly mindset that I'm right here with Jesus, living the resurrected life. 
I think it's perfect timing for the book of the month with D.L. Moody. I'm not trying to get you to buy the book. But I want to tell you, it goes right along with the rest of Colossians and living the resurrected life and the power that God gives us to live the life. It's not about me trying to attain what God has for me. It's about walking with him, understand what he's already given to me. Well, in Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul's prayer. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Again, connect this with the resurrected life that Paul's talking about in Colossians 3. The power's already been given to you and I because the reality is we are with him. What kind of power are we talking about here? Well, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's go to verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. You see, Paul's mindset was heaven. Paul understood the resurrection power, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, it's the same power that raised you from the dead. You are now dead in him as he has made you alive. Also, the resurrected life, God has given us the power to live. I don't have to attain to anything else. I walk with him and, and, and enjoy his grace that he gives to me, the power to live the life. Now, we can't do that in the flesh. We only live the resurrected life out, practically, when our minds are set on things above and that we're seeking him, we're pursuing him, allowing him to work in our life. Is that easy? No, we talked about there's distractions that come in our lives. But he desires for you and I to live in the heavenlies knowing that whatever we got going on in our life, he's already, he's conquered it and he's given us the power to walk through it. Can you say this morning that you're setting your minds on him? Are you seeking the things above? Are you living out the resurrected life? You know, our God is full of grace and full of mercy and longs to work, have his Holy Spirit work in our lives. We'll just take a few moments this morning and pray. And just have a time that the, we open our hearts up to the Lord. And maybe there's a, a part of your life or something going on that, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not living there. Maybe I'm not expecting or living with the power of God. What to do? Tell him. Lord, I see in your word, I hear from your word that I'm, I'm there with you. Open your heart up to him. Allow his power to work in you. At the same time, if you're here this morning, you never made that profession of faith. If you never said, yes, I need Jesus. You never said, I understand that Jesus came to die on the cross for my sin. If you never confessed your sin to him. 
Today's the day. Not just to get you to come to church. Not just to get you to believe in some facts. But to encounter to living God that longs for you, to walk with you, to empower you to live this life here on earth and to be freed from your sin. If that's you today, call upon his name. So, Father, we come before you as we read these scriptures, Lord, and the exhortation that we receive from you to set our mind on things above and not on this earth. Oh, Lord, that you would help us to pursue you, that we would truly live out the resurrected life that you have given us the power to, the life that you offer to us. And we pray now, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit. If there's something in our life, Lord, that is hindering the power of God, we pray that you would speak to us now. Speak to each one of us individually, Lord. Lord, I do pray for anyone here that has made, not made that profession of faith, having never admitted that they're a sinner. Maybe having in their mind they believe the facts, but have not committed or surrendered to you, Lord. That right now they would confess you and believe by pouring their heart out to you, Lord, opening their heart to you that You sent your son, Jesus, to go to the cross for our sin. That he was buried. He rose on the third day. And Lord, I pray if anyone here that they would confess that with their mouth and believe in their heart that they would truly be saved. We thank you, Lord. I pray for this congregation, Lord. Indeed, we pray that we would walk in this very same power that rose you, Lord Jesus, the very same power that raised us from the dead, being dead to sin now, that we would walk in that power and that grace, that your will would be done through the people of this church. All for your glory, Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.